Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is novelist and screenwriter Timothy Reinhardt, who is in town for Bookmark's Movable Feast and is the author of the novel Jesus' Brother James. Tim, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're glad you're here for, for Movable Feast. It's always a really fun event. Uh, have you done events like this before in the past? I have not done something this large. Um, actually, the only other time I've done an event with other authors is at Bookmark's yeah. uh, in September, September October. But uh, it's a really great idea. I think it's great. Um, independent bookstores are, are wonderful, and Bookmarks does a great job. Yeah. For those of you listening uh, who don't know about Movable Feast, we describe it as speed dating for authors, um, and it's a great event. I'm sure uh, if you want to find out about it for next year, it's something that Bookmarks does every year, or your local bookstore or literary arts organization may do uh, something similar to that. But but let's get on to talk about the novel, Jesus' Brother James. The first scene in your novel is this scene of a man sort of reviewing his wreck of a life while he's considering taking his own life. As a writer, what's it like to put yourself in the shoes of a character who's, who's at that point? Yeah, I know this may sound odd, but it's actually fun, fun for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it a lot of fun for all the characters in this book to just put myself in the shoes of those characters, um, to live vicariously through them, to, to kind of imagine, let my imagination just run wild. Um, but I think it's taking your own feelings and then expounding on them and, mm-hmm. and taking them to the extreme. So maybe if you feel a little bit of doubt or a little bit of um, uh, depression or whatever, and then expounding on it to a level where someone would be suicidal. Um, and, and that character is actually someone that I, I based on was a, a friend of mine a long time ago who had passed away suddenly and a lot of things went wrong in his life. So it was also therapeutic. To just yeah. kind of think, you know, what were they going through and, and um, what, what their life ended up to be compared to what they may have thought it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it was interesting for me when I'm reading that scene. And, you know, we all have people in our lives who have either taken their own lives or who have considered that or, or attempted that. And the first question we ask is like, well, how could you possibly do this thing? Uh, and you kind of try to get at that question pretty head on, I think. Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting because there's a little more detail later on in the book yeah. um, where it gets worse for him. Yeah. And the reason, you know, some of my beta readers who read the novel firsthand thought it was a little too harsh, um, but I thought, well, I really wanted to, to dive into why would somebody be suicidal yeah. to really push it to the end so that you're maybe a person who hasn't considered that would would think about it and say, oh, I can understand why this person is so sad uh, and his life feels like it's he's trapped. Well, we have, I think, we have a tendency as a society to be like, oh, that's something we don't want to talk about, that's something we don't want to think about. But I think, again, reading about it in a novel, it's a good way to start conversations and they're probably important conversations for us to have. Yeah, and I agree with you. And I, I love to open up a uh, character so... On, on the surface, someone may seem a certain way, but then when you pull back that layer, people are always much more interesting. Um, I travel the world and it's amazing 
how universal that is that yeah. there's a facade that people live in and you know it's it's kind of like you're grouping people are putting groups and and you just kind of assume so much about people but then when you pull back the layers i'm always fascinated that people are really interesting and have lived interesting lives yeah. and uh it's just uh, you're right you just underneath that layer um so much is going on that you may not be aware of so this is a novel about uh, four main characters uh whose lives cross over and intersect in, in various different ways and who also i feel like react to the challenges of the modern world in very different ways um so as a way of just sort of setting up the novel for our listeners could you introduce us to the to the four characters and talk about how at the beginning of the novel each of them deals with or fails to deal with the world that they're living in yeah so the, the four main characters and, and they're slightly different um we've already talked a little bit about a character who's suicidal his name is mike yep uh, his life has not turned out. He was the most popular guy in high school, handsome, uh, pleasant, easygoing, but his life kind of hits a dead end in his 30s. You know, he's in a dead end job. He's getting divorced for the second time. Uh, his his soon to be ex-wife is, is being very difficult and challenging. Um, so he feels um, like his life is pretty much over. Yeah. Um, the second character, uh, who is a friend of his from years past, Paul, is someone who He's almost not real. You know, he's the, and it's interesting because I based this character on a book I read called The Four-Hour Workweek where this, you know, uh, very flamboyant author says, you know, you don't need to work. You just get on a plane, go to Argentina and drink Malbec <laughs> in, in Mendoza Valley. Uh, so he's perfect, right? He, everything's great. He does what he wants to do. He doesn't really care about anyone else. Uh, his girlfriend, though, is uh, very different. She's a driven woman in the corporate world and she's at an age of 35 where she's really trying to decide all the effort that she's putting in the corporate world is it really worth it uh, and i picked the age 35 because my wife and i um, were trying to have children and everyone you know at the time in our 30s was saying you know 35 is a magic number if you wait beyond 35 you know it's much riskier for women to have children things like that and so she's the corporate woman who's who's trying to decide is this right for me it's not fulfilling um, and she really feels frustrated and she also feels frustrated with her relationship with Paul because he seems indifferent. Um, the last character in the four, uh, the foursome is a, uh, priest who's a very different type of priest. Yeah. His name is father Cody and he is actually a war veteran. So he actually served in the Iraqi war, uh, came back and he's having trouble, um, fitting back into his parish. Um, because of everything he's seen in the war, so he's coming back now, and the mundane day-to-day -day life is is hard for him to to fit back into. Yeah. So those are the four main characters, and they come together uh, through events. So I want to come back to Father Cody in just a minute, but um, it strikes me listening to you talk about Paul and Mike that in some ways these are two people who are very self-centered, and yet their self-centeredness, they're only thinking about themselves takes them almost in polar opposite directions. I mean, one of them just, as you said, just thinks the world is his oyster, he can do whatever he wants. And the other one thinks that the world has basically, you know, rejected him. Um, do, do you see them, that that coming from like, in some ways coming from the same place and yet in opposite directions? Yeah, I, I think the reason I picked that, is, I, I um, completely agree with your analogy there, is they are self-centered. Um, the interesting thing in life, though, is sometimes even though you may feel like you're choosing something for yourself, you know, you get down the path 
and things are different a year or two then. And I think Mike's decisions at the time, he picks a job that he's able to get good money and have a nice car. You know, it leads him to a life that's much more trapped. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where Paul's self-centeredness, it allows him to be free. He doesn't have children. He never gets married. Um, but at the same time, he's he's missing something as well. Yeah, it's interesting how he, he carefully avoids all the things that might actually lead him to have a fuller life. Right. Yeah, he's afraid of those commitments. So he's filling his life with these activities, um, but he still knows he's missing something. So... Um, tell talk a little bit about the role that Catholicism plays in this book, and and what if any role it has played in your own life. Yeah, so Catholicism, um, to me, it's an important role as me as an author, obviously, because I grew up Catholic. Uh-huh. But I, not only that, I grew up near a monastery. Um, it's a redemptorist um, retreat yeah. where brothers would go to study to become priests. It was Mount Saint Alphonsus. Uh, for those who are Catholic, know uh, Alphonsus is obviously a important figure because he starts the Redemptorist movement, which is a, a movement where uh, Alphonsus leaves becoming a lawyer to then becoming a priest to working with mm-hmm. the poor. So it's a very uh, selfless uh, um, path for the priest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would spend a lot of time with brothers talking about theology and about the complexity of religion. And to me, that's the important piece of Father Cody is I wanted to represent a more complex priest, um, someone who has a lot of different ideas. And it's actually based on several brothers and and one priest who went on to go to to become a a priest and a chaplain in in Iraq. So Uh he did actually go. So these are kind of all the the brothers and priests I knew growing up uh, thrown into one one character. Uh, And it's very important because I think it's a complex character uh, of a person who's facing complex ideas. Um, and he's just as frustrated as these other characters in the modern world. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I found it interesting that he's not, um, he's not the stereotype of what you think of if you think of a Roman Catholic priest. Um, doesn't mean that he is uh, rejecting the priesthood or anything like that, but it, as you say, there's, just, there's, there's issues. I mean, he's getting flirted with, you know, and, and things that yeah. we sort of don't think of um, when we're thinking of that stereotype of, you know, in the monastery or whatever. Uh, and, yeah. I, and I find that makes him an interesting character. And in that piece, didn't I didn't have to use my imagination because uh, there's a priest who actually married my wife and I, and at the uh, wedding ceremony, several of my wife's friends came over and said, "Oh, that priest is so handsome." Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, as a writer, you you store all those little pieces yeah, in your mind, yeah, and yeah. and uh, he drinks and he smokes, and um, he's he's a very interesting guy. When I used to live in New York, he would come when we go to see plays together, and again, you'd see him. In an environment where people didn't know he was a priest, sure. they treated him much differently. Differently, yeah. 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 When Father Cody, at the, again, near the beginning of the book, Father Cody is sort of dealing with um, this potentially suicidal uh, situation with, with, with Mike, and he's trying to kind of keep him from committing suicide. I think it's really easy for us as readers to insert ourselves there and realize how scary that must be that the words you say in this one moment can make the difference between somebody taking their life or, or not taking their life uh, and the consequences of, of failing as a counselor. Did you uh, do any research about like suicide counseling or suicide hotlines or the kinds of things where people are actually in those situations? Uh, yes. Um, 
and and just from past experience with people I know have gone through situations. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, growing up as a priest, I'm sorry, growing up with priests, you'd hear a lot um, about you know when they would kind of put their facade down and the layer underneath, they would tell stories about the stress that they would feel mm-hmm. um, of having to counsel people who were in very difficult situations. Yeah. Um, so it was a combination of of research and just my own experience. Yeah. You like to juxtapose the the comic and the dramatic. What would you say is the relationship between humor and I think specifically death in your work? Yeah, um, I think part of it is uh, everyone always asks me about my, my comedy writing because I know we've been talking a little bit here and people are like, oh, this is comedy. <laughs> uh, and my wife even calls it dramedy um, because a lot of it is very heavy. Um, I used to love comedy in the 70s. You know, Chico and the Man and, you know, All in the Family and all these shows that were a little heavier yeah. with their comedy. It was real. And you found humor in the the sad the sadness of life. Um, and part of it was my early writing, when I had editors look at my work, they thought it was too dark. Mm-hmm. And so I started to interject comedy into it because then it lightened the story as well as... Um, kind of juxtaposition the comedy with the drama yeah and yeah. i like that and even historically i like um you know ambrose bierce uh-huh. who wrote you know devil's dictionary but then he also wrote uh currents at owl creek and and mark twain and all these funny you know oscar wilde um who wrote comedy but they wrote it in a way that was was different it wasn't just silly comedy it was yeah. you know you'd have a serious story and all of a sudden you'd have hysterical laughter in a, in a very serious story. So um, I've always been attracted to that. Now, I know this is a tricky question, um, but I wonder, for you, what do you see as the essential elements of comedy? What what makes something funny? Um, <laughs> that's an excellent question. Um, because to me, I like to look at things from a different way. Uh-huh. So I think perspective in comedy is, is, hyster- is critical. That you're looking at something that you look back and say, you know, that's, that's a different way of looking at it. Um, but that, that's really hard to, to, to answer. That's a, that's a tough question. Um, I just like to spin things around, um, you know, just look at it differently. I guess yeah, almost yeah. like a kid, you know, you flip a picture upside down and say, hey, that looks funny, look that way. And, um, and that's what I do with my writing a lot of times. I'll take characters or scenes and I'll try to flip them upside down and say, yeah. this is not what you're going to expect. Um, you know, even my endings sometimes uh, with stories, I try to write endings that are just different because I want to flip it at the end just to make it funny as well. Yeah, yeah. So you have, there are a lot of these characters, and I think, I mean, we, we've sort of focused on the men at this point, but I think, you know, to a certain extent, this maybe applies to all four characters at times. There are times when, as a reader, I want to just grab them by the shoulders and go, don't do that, are you crazy? You know, they're acting in a way that seems to me childish or self-centered or irresponsible how do you help the readers to to sympathize with characters at the same time when they're acting in a way that may be contrary to what the reader wants to tell them to do yeah that that's another difficult challenge um because there's a specter of people and even working with my editor on on some of these characters um I'll get comments back that say, would someone really do that? And if I'm basing it on a real life situation. Um, so if that's so the piece I try to do is I try to make sure it's realistic. Um, and that hopefully will generate some sympathy for people. 
Um, and I think the other reason I, I use comedy is sometimes I try to interject comedy in as well to be sympathetic. Um, several of these characters in the book, um, like you say, they just they seem to just kind of see their oblivion in front of them and march right into it. Um, but again, I, I try to use realism to to give sympathy for people to say, look, you know, these these are just normal people. They're making bad decisions, but they're making decisions that anybody might make. Well, I mean, I think that's part of the trick of it too, is that even though, you know, a reader has a perspective on a situation that the person who's in the situation doesn't have. Uh, if we were to write the, the, have a novelist come in and write the stories of our own lives, we'd probably look at them and go, oh yeah, I shouldn't have acted that way. I shouldn't have done that. Um, and so it, in a way, it's almost a chance for us to to learn what not to do um, in a way. But I just found it interesting. I mean, I, I, it, it's not that I didn't have sympathy with these characters. I did. Um, but there were definitely times when I was just, I just wanted to smack them and go, don't do that. Are you, what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. And I think part of it is, um, especially when you write comedies, you want to push it to the edge. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, uh, I, I work on films as well. And one of the harder things about writing a book than, than working on a screenplay, or I know that you write plays. Um, if you have actors and directors and folks, you can sit there and have a, a you know, kind of a, a rehearsal and you can watch yeah. the scene whereas if you're writing a novel the hard part is it's all in your mind yeah. you can't you know say oh well let's get five actors and act this scene out and go wait a second I'm not sympathetic to them or you know so that's the uh, that is a difficult uh, challenge in, in writing a novel versus yeah. a screenplay which I think is why it's important you mentioned the having having beta readers I think it's important to have some early readers um, that that you whose opinions you trust who you can you know, get that kind of feedback that you it, that you would get for a screenplay or for a play. You would get by having people read it out loud in a group. You know, yeah, yeah. I I find beta readers uh, essential um, in this story because um, just a little bit about my process. Um, after failing to write my first novel, which I'm actually going to publish next year, <laughs> um, I got stuck in a loop of just rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. Um, I just couldn't get an arc, couldn't get the story to go uh, in a good direction. Yeah. Um, I now write screenplays first. So I write a screenplay, hmm. and that gives me an outline for the story, but it also allows me to look at the characters um, more so than a traditional outline model. Um, and for this book, there was a small character, her name was Amber, yeah. who's a 35-year-old pharmaceutical um, exec who's just, you know, just kind of burnt out in life. And her character was very, very small. And through the beta readers and through working with my editor, that character now has become a lar the main character. Yeah. And to me, she's actually my favorite character in the book. Um, because out of all the characters in the book, to your point, I feel like she's the one that's the most thoughtful. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's frustrated and she's challenged, but you know, she seems to be much more measured and she seems to be... She doesn't seem to be as as silly as some of the other characters. Yeah, that's interesting. How you you talk about you know you thought of her as a smaller character and she became larger. I've just been working with the designer for the cover of my novel that's coming out in September, and one version that we had it's not the way we went, but one version we had had a character on the cover. Well, was a lot of characters in this novel, and there's not it's not immediately apparent that one of them is you know the hero, and so it was interesting to me to see who he wanted to put on the cover. Because to me, that said, okay, this is the person that the reader sympathizes with. 
the most or, or, or identifies with the most. So yeah, I think having those early readers is, um, is, is really important. So I, I, I'm fascinated by this idea that you, you write a screenplay first. Do you feel like, I mean, I wasn't, as I was reading your book, I wasn't noticing, for instance, the balance between dialogue and other things, but, but a screenplay obviously is usually tends to be dialogue heavy. Um, do you find that it's easier to write dialogue because you, you do that more or, yeah, that that to me is uh, the easiest part. Yeah, and that's why I write the screenplay. Um, and also, to me, a lot of my stories, and actually, I've been asked to, to write a play because my screenplays tend to be really dialogue heavy. Yeah, um, and I like the interaction. I like the play. Like I said, I like Oscar Wilde and these people. The play on words and the little games that that can happen with characters. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, I can get the idea out quickly. Um, so if I have a, an idea for a story, say it's a, you know, a 25, 30 minute, you know, screenplay, I can get out quickly in a couple of days. I can have the whole thing drafted out. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in a novel, I tend to get bogged down. You know, I start thinking about too much of the details. Um, sure. and then you go back and you're like, Oh, I lost my train of thought and you go off on a tangent. Um, whereas a screenplay, it's wow, I've got, I have something here or the, the opposite. I don't really have anything here. It sounded good in my head. I get it out on paper. I didn't waste a lot of time, but I know it really needs some work. Yeah, but it seemed to me there's there are two there are two things that authors end up with when they go through the story the first time, and that is either something that's longer, significantly longer than what's going to be in the end, or something that's significantly shorter than it's going to be in the end. You know, you have one direction or the other to go. But I would think that with the screenplay format, um, it, it would help you to focus the story and then when you're expanding it, understand what needs to be there and what doesn't need to be there. Because it's easy to put in, as you say, details that are lovely and beautifully written and have n- don't really belong there. You know? Yeah, I use a Christmas tree analogy. So, you know, if you have a Christmas tree and, you know, that's my screenplay, and then all the detail are the nice decorations and yeah. the ornaments. Yeah. But as you're decorating that tree, if you notice it's, it's too heavy on one side, um, it's easier to see that once you have that screenplay out. Yeah. And so... Yeah. As you mentioned, sometimes I've written paragraphs or pages of description, and then I get back and go, well, this really doesn't help the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing about the screenplay is having worked on a set and a film with really talented actors and, and talented crew, not yeah. just the actors, because if you show up on a, on a set, um, you'll realize that the people who do makeup or the folks who do the lighting, they all read the screenplay because oh, yeah. they want to know yeah. how they fit into this story. Um, and, and you realize that that's what you're doing. You're telling a story. Um, and I have the fault of sometimes writing for myself. Oh, this is a great paragraph, but it really has nothing to do with the story. Yeah. The well, audience we, we, is... we all have that fault. <laughs> <laughs> and so that helps kind of discipline me. It kind of reins me back in. Yeah, yeah. I, this is slightly off topic, but just what you said about all the people who are involved in a film, and this has been my experience with doing plays as well, um, are they're all the creatives. They're all contributing in this creative way to the final process. We had a friend who's a Foley artist who works in rural Canada on these big Hollywood movies. And he's sitting there making all these creative decisions about, you know, well, I think this ladder is really old, so it should be creaky, you know. And, and uh, it was just amazing to me that he wasn't, it's not just work for hire, that it's, he's, he's contributing to the final creative uh, product. And as a novelist, you know, we have that a little bit with editors and designers, but we're mostly on our own. Yeah, and and I like that interaction. And I actually, uh, my neighbor is a director of theater at a university in Raleigh. And so 
I give him screenplays and he and his wife are actors and they'll come over and they'll have a glass of wine and they'll go through my dialogue. And yeah. I feel like I'm a pretty good dialogue uh, person, but even, you know, to myself, I'll listen to dialogue as they say it and I'm amazed going, no, that's not what I want. And yeah. so um, it, it's really helpful for me. I mean, I find for me, even just reading something that I've written out aloud to myself, you know, uh, you know, my wife will come in and she's like, are you talking to somebody on the phone? I'm like, no, I'm reading a page of the, that I just wrote to see if it sounds okay, you know. Uh, well, let's let's go to the let's go to the title of this book because into the lives of these four characters we've been talking about comes James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, now, for any of our readers who haven't read the Gospels or the Book of Acts lately, explain to us who James is, and then what what drew you to this particular biblical character. Yeah. So and. This is going to sound a little nerdy, but uh, <laughs> I've always been, I mean, I'm a, uh, I was a history major in college, so I love history. Um, but as I mentioned, I grew up near a monastery, and if you go to a church on a Sunday, you know, you sit there and you're usually fairly passive. You know, you listen mm -hmm. to maybe the sermon in the middle of the Mass or sing. Um, but if you go and you talk to the brothers, there's always these fascinating things. And I got into uh, history of Christianity, and, and you read through, and... James is there in, you know, Acts, as you mentioned. Yeah. And there's a whole kind of a history of after Jesus and the growth of the church. And uh, he's kind of a forgotten character, really. I mean, most people don't even know. Um, some people would say he's not even the brother of James. He's actually a cousin, or if you believe in the perpetual energy, right. virginity of, of Mary. But uh, it's, it's kind of a forgotten character. And another thing, like I said, I like this kind of, surprise the audience um to me that's fascinating and that he's been forgotten and there's not really much written about him so um th that's why i was drawn to him i'm the fifth of five children you know so i was kind of the, you know how it is with the kids you know oh, yeah. by the time you get to the fifth child my mom doesn't remember what my name is <laughs> um so i was always drawn to this james character um and so i've read books on him always been fascinating and it's not really a religious book, um, but that's what drew me to the, the idea. The other thing um, about where this comes from is I was actually in Copenhagen once, um, and I had a colleague from Sweden, and we're out shopping, and we came to this t-shirt shop, and there was a big t-shirt that had a picture of the devil and uh, had an inscription that said, God is busy, can I help you? And this, <laughs> my Swedish <laughs> colleague thought that was the funniest thing ever. Um, and for some reason, I connected you know, God is busy, you know, can I help you with someone else? Yeah, and that's where yeah. I connected with James of, yeah. you know, you know, Jesus can't help you, but this is James. But, but James will come and, and But James will come and help you. So, so James shows up. I mean, he, he, he physically manifests in the, in the lives of these people. Um, and, and we seem to think he's going to be a, some sort of a counselor or a calming influence. But there's this there's a little problem in that he only speaks Aramaic and everybody else only speaks English. Um, so, I mean, first of all, why did you decide to have him not be able to communicate linguistically with, uh, you know, with, with the other characters? Um, so, um, and I have to, I guess maybe I should disclaim that my wife is studying to be counselor. And so in thinking about counseling, I always think that a lot of counseling is self-reflection. Right. And so I thought it would be best that if the characters are actually self-reflecting and learning themselves. The second thing I thought it would just be funny. Yeah. That there's that 
you know, that we can't understand each other. You know, in comedy, there are a lot, there's a lot of humor based on misunderstanding. And so if you put a character in there that everyone seems to be drawn to and thinks that this character is going to solve their problems, but then to put this obstacle, it, it allows the characters to, to kind of have humor in trying to overcome that obstacle. Yeah, and I can tell you that if you type the, the few words that James says into Google Aramaic <laughs> Translator, you know, it doesn't, it, it's, it's hard to track down. So, um, and, and actually, it's interesting because if you go on YouTube or anything of that nature, um, you know, the most common thing is the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. Sure, yeah. Um, so, Rakama is actually kind of my own creation. And so I'll just give you a famous word that he says throughout, but it's, it's taking a word that means happiness or, or, or um, yeah, happiness is probably the best thing. So I think that's what he's trying to communicate is, you know, yeah. be happy. So do you see James really as a mirror that these other characters look into? Um, yeah, I, I do. I think, um, I think he's kind of a, of, of a, you know, a, a calming presence of, them taking a step back in their own lives and to your point before you know they're kind of at the frenetic pace and they're doing yeah, things they yeah. probably shouldn't be doing and he's almost like a timeout like yeah wait, take yeah. a timeout in your life reflect on yourself and then what do you really want to do and because he moves yeah you see, he moves very slowly he you know frequently there's a scene going on and sometimes i'm i don't even know he's in the room uh, until like he says one word or somebody goes, oh, who's this you know quiet, calm person over over in the corner? Uh, so yeah, it does it does sort of affect the feel of the pace of their lives? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's what I was hoping to do is to let them reflect back on themselves. Yeah. You have a chapter. I love I love chapter titles, and you have a chapter called Modern Man and Old World Beliefs. How do you think the chapter of that title might apply to this entire novel? Um. I think it's because uh, there are so many things we just assume, um, and again, maybe it's because I'm a historian that I don't think we realize sometimes that traditions or things that have kind of kind of floated along throughout history that uh, that affect our lives, that put pressure on us to make mm-hmm. us do certain things. Um, is how do we how do we deal with that? Yeah. How do we deal with the modern world with concepts that maybe we don't fully understand why we're following them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this really struck me because we, my wife and I, go to an Anglo-Catholic uh, Episcopal parish here in Winston-Salem. So we do, we do a lot of things that are very old traditions that we're doing in 2020, and it, it, it there's a there's a certain tension that comes with that, and there's a certain peace that comes with that too, of knowing that you know people have been using the incense the same way for the last thousand years or whatever. Um, but that uh, so that really struck me as as and and uh, you know you have you have that sort of manifested in James is in the corner, and then these you know I think especially um, this this driven career woman who just you know wants to go from promotion to promotion uh, is almost the you know the complete opposite of that, and what. How, how are those two worlds going to come together? Yeah, yeah and, and to go back to what I said about growing up with all these redemptorist priests and the story of Alfonso, right, who's a lawyer yeah, yeah. who goes and gives up everything to be poor, um, you know, there is that, that, those concepts of, you know, well, what is the right path? And um, we have so many people telling us in different ways, you know, your boss is telling you, well, we need to get the numbers up. Your wife is telling you, we need to do this, you know, and... At the same time, you have all these undercurrents of, but you need to be a good person, you need yeah. to do this. Uh, it's really hard to juggle all these things. And I think 
to your point, that, that's a good, to me, that's, that's a good theme of this story is these people are just trying to juggle a lot of things and they're having a hard time juggling all of all that we need to do in, in life. Yeah. Yeah. The presence of, of James, this, this robed, sandaled, Aramaic speaking character from 2000 years ago over in the corner to me gives almost a, a magical realism feel to, to the story. So I'm curious about who, who your literary influences are and, and what you learn from them. Um, yeah. So literary, I, I mentioned a few already. Um, obviously when I was younger, uh, you know, I read a lot of, uh, and some, some of them are not as well known, you know, Ambrose Bierce, I don't think if, for those of you who haven't read them, um, Devil's Dictionary is one of my favorite mm -hmm. writings. Um, I loved, um, Tolstoy, um, Dickens, all the classics. Yeah. But then what I do is I mix that. Um, Stephen King is one of my favorite authors, um, because I think, you know, Tolstoy is so thick. Yeah, and it's yeah. hard to get through but then king is just he's so fluid and you're able to get through his stories um so but i think the the biggest thing is i hope you know like when i read things of stephen king or other authors is that i can use that flow that nice i want to tell a story i want yeah. people to get through i want people to enjoy the the, the story yeah i mean i think that to, to focus on story because all the authors that you mentioned i think that's that's always what it comes back down to i mean i think especially if I'm if I'm balancing Dickens and Stephen King, like there's a lot in common there, uh, in that yeah, it is about creating a world, but also you know having having a story in there. No matter how supernatural Stephen King's things are, it's always ultimately for him, I think, about the characters in the story. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Stephen King's characters; they're they're fantastic. Um, I always get caught up. I, I remember I took a break from Stephen King, and then I read. Uh, what is it? Eleven twenty-three sixty-three. Such a great book. Yeah. yeah, and it just get caught up in the characters. You're right. The characters are just so solid, um, and, and he has a way to, to move along. And I think that's the, one of the hardest pieces I have as a writer is, you know, I want to give people um, enough of the characters, but then leave them questioning or leave, let the sure. let the audience make their own stamp on the characters. Yeah. Um, so the the relationship with the audience is something I really work on. Uh, and hope that when they read the book, they can make their own determinations on the character. I don't want to be too simplistic and say, oh, this is the character. This is what I want you to think. Yeah. Um, and let them just, you know, enjoy the character. Yeah, I think that's important for us to understand that the reader is always going to bring their own background, and their own agenda. And that as, as writers, even though, as we said before, the, the process of writing a novel is mostly a one-person creative act. Writing the novel is really only the first half of the creative act. And you've got to have somebody read it for it to, for it to be complete. And that is different every time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how other authors deal with that, but for me, the hardest thing about writing novels is the gap, you know, that you write oh, something yeah. Yeah. and then you have to wait so long to get a response. When you write a screenplay, like I said, I call my neighbors over and have them act out the scene and, and maybe, you know, maybe I'm part of the new generation that I need that spo spontaneous uh, reaction. Um, but, that's that's another big difference with with screenwriting is that you get a chance to see. I, I mean, I've sat in a theater with with an audience. Yeah, and, it's, some, and you it's have really something. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I've never sat next to somebody reading my book and and hope that they laugh. Well, at the you right know, point. having been a playwright, I've said the same thing. Like, there, it is both thrilling and terrifying <laughs> to look at watch three hundred people reacting to your words in real time. You know, and you see immediately 
gosh, I didn't think that one was funny, but it is. And I thought this was hilarious. And no, it's a dud, you know. Uh, and it's 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 ruthless. It's merciless, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it it is it is very it is very stressful. But maybe it's an adrenaline rush because you know I'm addicted to that that interaction with the audience. Yeah, I, I love yeah. going to a theater and seeing folks uh, watch my screenplays. And yeah. So yeah. Um, even now, I you know I. Yeah, I still have people come over to the house and they'll say, "Hey, can we throw up a movie of yours on yeah. YouTube and, yeah. Yeah. and and watch it?" Um, and it is fun to to see the reaction. And I think that's true what you say about the gap. I mean, a lot of times as writers, uh, you know, we I've done this sort of event like you're doing, and usually I'm I'm talking about yeah. I, usually I've written another book, you know, and, and now I'm talking about the book that I wrote you know two years ago, and all my my brain is full of the one that I that I just finished writing two weeks ago which if I'm lucky will be out, you know, two years from now. And so it is, it's, you have to kind of juggle those spaces in your mind a little bit. Yeah. I don't know how it is for you, but for me, it's almost, uh, giving birth to something, you know, you spend so much effort and once you, you know, you, you've written a book, a lot of that seems to just go away that you forget a lot of the detail. And and if you have somebody go and ask you a very specific question. Yeah. People ask me stuff all the time about, and I'm like, "Uh, I did not remember that about that book. (laughs) (laughs) I'm fascinated by this line that I came across in the text um, because I just think it, there may be, there's a universality in it that, that we could unpack a little bit. Uh, And you write the more confident Paul became in his life choices, the more awkward encounters with old friends became. Could, could you talk about that a little bit? Because I think there's a there's a broadness to that. Yeah, it, it, it's. I think that's a personal um, reaction that I've had in life. That, mm-hmm. ironically, and, and I find irony in this. Yeah, is sometimes I feel like the more confident I feel in certain things that I finally, you know, you you you, you mull over, you mull over, and you do something, and you feel like, wow, I'm really proud of this. It seems to separate you from some some of your past. And I guess that's natural, especially maybe since I'm a historian, I should realize that. Um, But it feels very odd, you know, if you go back to a family reunion or go back to a high school reunion or or even just to talk to friends on the phone. um, It's it's really just growing up, I guess, and changing. You you, you evolve through your life and and it's almost like your, you know, tectonic plate or something. You don't fit just as well. And, and you feel that, you feel it, and then you know the person you're interacting with feels it too. Yeah. And there's such a strange awkwardness. Um, and I think part of it too is also you feel disappointed, like, oh, I've gotten to this, I've done something that I feel is really good, and wait a second, I'm not getting the response that I thought yeah. I'd get. Yeah. And I found, I don't know for you, like there, there are one or two people in my life for whom that's not true, for whom I can just... I haven't seen him in 10 years and we can sit down and open a beer and it's just like it was in college or in high school or wherever we met, you know? And, and, uh, that, that's to me, that sort of layers over that comment that, that, uh, that Paul makes that if you're lucky, you might have one or two people in your life who, who don't fall into that category. You know? Yeah. It, it's amazing. Cause I travel a lot, you know, so I grew up in New York. I went to school in California and, so I always, if I'm traveling for business, I'll call an old friend and say, hey, let's go out for dinner. And you're right. There are certain people, you go out to dinner and you pick up and, and the stories are different and, and you know talk a little bit about the past, but a little about the future. And, and it's like you just never 
you yeah. know, left yeah. that person. It's nice. And yeah. then there are other people that you're like, wait a second, when's the check in? <laughs> it's time to get out of dinner. Um, and it's just you've grown apart, and it's 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 just part of life. But it's it's interesting to deal with. So you've you've traveled quite a bit. Um, you have a background in the pharmaceutical industry. How how does that background um, play into into this novel, or does it? Um, on this novel, um, the most important aspect of my of my pharmaceutical background is there's a character Amber who's in the pharma, pharmaceutical world, right. and her frustration is something I you know I felt I worked in the corporate world for 20 years, um, you know it's it's like a Dilbert cartoon you don't believe you're living it yeah. and the things you have to deal with on a day to day basis, so I felt all her frustration so. Ironically enough, the character that I feel a little closest to when I write is Amber. Yeah. I felt yeah. I felt so much like her. I felt, you know, hey, the the, the corporate world is just brutal, um, yeah. and it's not brutal from poverty standpoint or anything like that. It's mentally, yeah. you know, you're not challenged. You're you're dealing with stuff you really don't want to deal with on a day to day basis. You're in a very rigid um, existence, and uh, that that piece is a, an important part. Uh, my first novel is a little more. Um, reflective of that because it takes place a, a gentleman wakes up in india uh-huh. and he's a pharmaceutical guy who doesn't know how he ended up in a hospital in india and is a comedy about kind of tracing back how he ended up there and why police are chasing him uh, for this one it's specifically um that you know this character is is feeling all those and, and she's an important character the other thing about my um my work is that i travel around the world and for me, it really helps me to look at things from a different perspective. Yeah. Um, as a writer, it's very, very hard. I don't know if you deal with this, but I'll start off on a chapter and I'll have a very fresh angle of a character. And then I go back and read it a day or two later. And I'm like, wait a second. The character is sliding into, into something that's more like me when I'm trying to keep them. Yeah. And so um, I try to think of things from a different perspective, you know, you know, you go to England, right? So they say silly things like binnet and and trousers, and and it it's a different vocabulary, but they they approach things differently. Yeah, yeah. So everywhere you go in the world, everyone approaches things differently. And as a writer, it really helps me in, in a scene or a character to try and think about what's a different way to to bring this character to life. And yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the biggest benefit as a writer in general that. I do get to travel. I do get to meet a lot of people, and they they really keep me fresh. Of don't get into that rut um, of just thinking about th- just one way. Yeah, well, I, I find that too. When we travel, I'm not necessarily actively working on stuff, but then I'll get home and and just little details of things that we saw or places that we went will will suggest themselves as being perfect for a particular situation, a particular character, or, or a story, or whatever. And and it's lovely to have those connections between, uh, you know, your travels or your you know your world outside of writing, and then the the world that of your creation. You know. Yeah, and also um, we were talking before about the modern world and things. Uh, you know, if you're in Moscow or if you're in India, is a great example, right? You're, you're sitting up on top of a hotel looking at just a world that's completely different than anything you've ever experienced. But you're removed from it, yeah. And and even now, you have your cell phone and things. People still text you and things, but you're still removed from your day to day routine, and it really allows you to step outside yourself. Yeah, 
We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into you and your writing process and your life. So if you're ready, we will begin the speed round. What word do you love to work into your writing? I'm going to use surprise. Okay. Because I like to surprise the audience. Yeah. So I think uh, I'll, I'll stick with that one. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Love. Because I think it's overused. Mm. Yeah. Where's your favorite place to write? My favorite place to write is in a, a foreign city, um, in a cafe or hotel lobby where no one knows me and I can people watch yeah. and, and, and specifically if I don't speak the language. Yeah. So that's even better. Where could you never write? I could never, I could never write on a boat. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Uh, probably the, I, I slip in the passive voice too uh, yeah. much probably. Mm -hmm. What was the first book you remember reading? The first book, uh, I know this isn't the first book I, I, um, I've read, um, but it was the, uh, and I, it's the one uh, where the wild things are. Oh yeah, yeah. Where yeah. the wild things are. Yeah. I don't know what it was about that story. I think um, I always imagined just going to a different place and I love the concept that he's just in his closet, um, but he's able to transform, yeah. transport himself into a different world. What are you reading now? Uh, well, I'm reading uh, a couple books right now. I'm reading, I'm reading your book. You're reading The Bookman's Tale, yeah. Yeah, the yeah, Bookman's Tale. Yeah. Uh, I'm reading that. Excellent answer. <laughs> and, and you know what? Actually, it's, I'm reading also Sapiens, um, yeah. which is a great book. Mm -hmm. um, what book would you like to have written? Uh, there's a book by Tolstoy called um, Resurrection that I absolutely love, and I wish I could have. I think Tolstoy is amazing. I wish I could have written that. Yeah. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? I would love to write a good horror mm. story, um, but I don't. I don't know if I can. Yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I would really love it when. when when a reader tells me that they think about the world differently because they read something in my book that changed their perspective on yeah. things. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Timothy Reinhardt, author of the novel Jesus' Brother James. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider posting a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking to Eric Larson, best-selling author of Devil and the White City, whose new book The Splendid and the Vile examines the first year of Winston Churchill's prime ministership. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Music